I got a little girl, she's four years old. 10 years from now, when she asks me about the Chicago Bears, I'll tell her about a championship, and I'll tell her about great teams, and great teammates and great coaches, and how great it was to be a part of it. But the first thing I tell her about is Walter Payton. Savoring Sweetness, the life and times of Walter Payton. Welcome to Savoring Sweetness, the Walter Payton Podcast. I'm Rick Tarsitano, joined in person, no phone today, by Jerry Payton. What's going on, Ricky? We're here to talk about a guy who is one of the more intimidating people I've seen post-career. I remember when he walked up to talk to us that day, I was shocked because I had never met the man in person to see just how physically looming that guy is he was, it was like a polar bear walking up to me and grabbed my hand and was damn near close to my elbow with his fingers yeah stan hampton yeah he's he's the animal <laughs> i mean when you think about him playing i mean it just you watch videos of him and just an amazing talent his ability to like play inside outside whatever you need him to play i mean and to get to the quarterback, I mean, it just set up perfectly for that Bears defense in that day and age. Yeah, uh, and the cowboy collar just made him look like, I don't know, like one of those football players, the magnetic ones where they're they're like. Yeah, it's like him uh, and Matsui both had like those the cowboy collars. Yeah, the cowboy made, co- collars look, made him look super sweet. I yeah. tried to wear one when I was in high school and I couldn't tackle, so they made me take it off immediately. <laughs> one of the – most heartwarming parts about doing this whole project with you was listening to what he said that day uh, on the field. I'm sure that parts of you were numb just with everything going on, but do you remember when he he said what he said about your dad and how that would be the first thing he'd tell his kid? Yeah, I remember. It, it was uh, kind of a crazy day. The day, when I think about it, was more of like a haze because there was just so much going on at that moment and in that time period, but yeah, I remember. I actually had to find the camera because I had a camera and I was videotaping and taking pictures. You can and stuff. see some of the shots of you standing yeah, up and looking around, but especially when the fans were going up. And yeah, I couldn't. Fi- I can't find that camera, so I got to look through some of my old stuff. But I remember that moment, and that's probably probably the the one moment that stands out the most about that day just because of how emotional he was. And you talked about his presence and you think about this big guy and you think about watching him play and for him to say what he said and to have that conversation with him, it's pretty special, man. He, he's a special dude and I know his uh, feelings for my dad were straight from the heart. Yeah, I think it was three days ago, five days ago, Dakota, my daughter was telling me, uh, she lives in Arizona now, and there's a lot of uh, Chicago Bear transplant fans. Um, and she was on a golf course, and somebody heard her name, and and they said, "You're, you're the uh, the daughter that Dan Hampton spoke of at Walter's memorial at Soldier Field." And she said, "Yeah." And you know, she was a little kid then; she was four years old. She didn't know much about what was going on, but. Uh, you know, here it is 20 years later, and uh, people remember how it all went down, uh, you know, the uh, 
the huge event that uh, that everyone attended at Soldier Field. And you know, I mean, it's 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 hard to believe. It's a blink of an eye. She's 24 now. So uh, rest assured, I've told her many times about the team. But like I said, the first thing I'm going to tell her about is Walter. It's it's amazing. I remember that moment, and I was telling Rick, there's a lot of people that have said things about my dad that you know yeah. made comments. I remember that moment the most because I was there and I was mm -hmm. sitting there, and I remember hearing the fans go crazy. And I was thinking about it just sitting at Soldier Field. I was like, man, you know, this place is, was his home on Sundays. He it lived was. in South Barrington, but Soldier Field was his home. What kind of teammate was he? You know, I drive by Soldier Field, I go, ah, I'm driving by the office. You know, we all laugh and, and say, yeah, that's what we used to do, our, our best work. Um, he was an amazing teammate. Uh, when I got here, he already had set records. He was on a uh, collision course with every meaningful record in the NFL, and he was magical. He was like a movie star on your football team, and and we all, tr in, 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 in one way we treated him like a movie star, and in the other way he treated us like regular everyday teammates. And he would say funny things all the time. Uh, he'd be walking out, and, two-day practices, it's 100 degrees, and you know, and everybody's apprehensive about getting started. He'd walk around going, I love the smell of fear in the morning, and <laughs> everybody would bust out laughing. You know, uh, John Madden gave me the nickname Danimal, and uh, anyway, he knew, you know, Mongo and I, we always like to drink a beer and all that. He says, you need to have your own beer company, call it Danimal, and your ad could be, have a can of Danimal. You know, he was just, just always coming up with clever funny things to say, but the one thing that I always remember about Walter was, and there's a picture, and, and you know, you've got to see it. it. I think there was a calendar that was made of all the, uh, the major players or key figures, and I was telling my wife about this. If you look at the picture, it's almost a metaphor for what the team was. Um, you know, McMahon, the goof, has got, you know, some racquetball glasses on, and, and Mongo's got his shoulder pads on, and this guy, and we'd just come in from practice, and everybody, all the cast of characters, you know, everybody was around the, the, on the peripheral, but what was at the very middle? Well, who was in the middle? It was Walter. Walter was the core of the team. And, you know, Buddy Ryan used to tell me, he said, you know, I don't need some fly-by-night, you know, play out your butt one week and then you disappear for three weeks in a row. He goes, I need someone that'll bring it every day and be the constant. Well, that was what Walter was. He was, you, everyone knew that rain, cold, shine, it didn't matter. You're gonna get 110 out of him. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 it is, it's, it's an amazing thing to go into a game and, and Lou Holtz used to talk about it when I was in college. He goes, you know, every game, I don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. Well, the Chicago Bears knew for 13, 14 years what was going to work, and it was going to be Walter Payton. Did you have any game that kind of stuck out where you had a wow moment, like when you think back about him, it jumps off to you? Like oh, so, I mean, you know, what did I play with Walter? Nine years, so, I mean, over 130, 50 games. Well, I, don't, I don't know how many. I remember one in Tampa. Everybody's feeling sorry for themselves because it's 93 degrees and we're puking on the sidelines and, you know, and, and it's hot. 
and I'm out there watching Walter dodge Leroy Selman and Hugh Green and these other great players, and you know, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, we've got we're supposed to have 11 on offense, and he's one, so we got 10 guys essentially involved, but it's like he's the only guy playing. I mean, it was five guys trying to tackle him here, and he'd dodge them, and he'd run over here. There's five more guys trying to tackle him, he'd dodge them. That was almost, you know, the uh, the way it was for a long time. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'll never forget when it was '84, and we were right on the cusp of being a special team, a great team, a, a team that everybody in the NFL looked at as the gold standard, and. Walter was, uh, you know, the, a countdown to him breaking the all-time rushing record. And anyway, I was in the locker room, like on a Friday before the game. We're playing the Saints, and in Soldier Field, of all places, it was great. And I said, hey, who wants to be on the front page of Sports Illustrated? And everybody goes, me, how, how? And I said, be the first one to Walter after he breaks that record. <laughs> Guess who it was? It was Otis Wilson. They do a high five. It's on the cover. I mean... It, that was the way it was. It was almost like we knew he was the, uh, you know, class valedictorian, and and we all were in unison, not only cheering him, but so proud of all of his accomplishments. We keep talking about how that 85 team, so special. Um, that year was so special. Mm -hmm. But each and every one of you were elevated even more. I mean, it wasn't just my dad. It was like, yeah, he was here from the 70s and kind of came up. But that team had so many different characters where, not that he took a back seat, but everybody, the whole team was kind of well known. And we think about that. We were talking about how in that Super Bowl game, not scoring the touchdown and we, reading the comments from you about you didn't want him to look kind of negative in no. that 30 for 30 of what it meant. But having the conversation, talk, talk about that. And well, see, and, 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 you know, again, like I said, he's a movie star, but yet he's my teammate. So I, I had to be honest. And I told him afterwards, you know, I, and, and when it kind of became a, you know, a factoid, oh, Walter was distraught. He was upset about not scoring a touchdown. I went up to him afterwards and I said, hey, I didn't score a touchdown either. And I don't give a damn. You know, I was trying to make light of it because I didn't want him to get caught up in that moment. All the great, all the accomplishments, all the, you know, being the, the, the shining light of that franchise for so long to be denigrated in any form or fashion, especially by something, you know, that it was, it was so obvious what, what, you know, the whole thing was. The, the New England Patriots basically said, we have one chance and one chance in hell of beating these guys, and that's for Walter to be stopped. So they, that was the entire game plan. That's why Suey scored twice, the fridge, you know, every, you know, McMahon, everybody else had great games because of the fact that they sold out to stop Walter. And, you know, and I mean, Walter had been around a long time, but I guess you get a little myopic and you forget about the big picture. What was so important was, yeah, well, that game, it was one of those deals where Walter didn't score. Maybe he didn't feel like he was a part of it. Would have never even been in the Super Bowl if it wasn't for Walter Payton. That was the thing I wanted him to understand. Just from 
reading your Hall of Fame induction speech, you talk about just how much of a competitor he was. Can you put that in perspective for people that, that weren't with him every day, day in, day out, just some of the stuff that he did at yeah. practice? Or You know, everybody has like a certain career trajectory. When you're young, you're bulletproof, and then in the middle, you kind of get beat up and wore down, and at the end, you're scared to death that, you know, hey, how long can I go without, you know, collapsing and getting injured and stopping. And everybody goes through these natural, you know, periods of their career. Through it all, Walter was more, and I'm gonna say violent, as, uh, you know, he was, he ran more violent in his 10th year than I think in his second or his fifth year. That, that tells you what kind of competitor he was. We all slow down, we all lose a little here, a little there, the injuries, you know, basically you, you get your athletic, athleticism beat out of you. Now, who can overcome it? You know, I know a lot of guys that had a knee injury or two and they had to hang it up. Walter, he kept, and it wasn't publicized. Everybody knew my knees were shot, blah, blah, blah. He was more personal and private about it. But he had his own, you know, injuries and, and, and things that he had to deal with. And he would come in at 5 a.m. and lift and be in the ice tub way before anybody else got there in order that he would be at his best on Sunday, but he didn't want anybody to know. It's almost like you don't want, you know, Clark Kent doesn't want anybody to know he's Superman and when he takes off that suit. Right. And he, he, he was amazing. I mean, and, 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 you know, the other part about it was I admire his, you know, you, everybody goes, oh, yeah, that guy's got a big head and this guy, you know, he's arrogant, blah, blah, blah. Walter never was. And he was the best player in the game of football, the best, planet, best player on planet Earth and yet, you know, would play cards, would laugh, would tell jokes. I mean, it was, uh, it was truly an incredible life. And again, that's what makes it all so tragic because, uh, you know, it was just the other day that we had the 10-year anniversary. It was 1995, and it was at Rivas. And it has been 10 years since the Super Bowl, and, you know, everybody was all jazzed up. Oh, yeah, yeah, this will be great. And we go... And we're all having a big time. And some of the guys, you know, they lost their hair. And some guys had gained weight. And they said, Walter came up in his Lamborghini, got out, looked like a movie star. And we all said, wow. I mean, he truly was. Just, he was a superstar. And then four years later, you know, he's no longer with us. So, you know, he was like a zenith of a, of a shooting star. I mean, it's just, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. The 100th year celebration, you got your gold jacket. All the living guys with gold jackets were there. When you were on that stage, did you sit there and wish like, man, at least one of those guys with gold jackets that you played with was my dad. He wasn't there. Were you, were you thinking about him at that moment? Absolutely. And, and you know what? Dick Buckus, Gail Sayers, and, and, and Mike Ditka, they were of an era 20 years ahead of us in the 60s. And they represent so much of what the Bears' tradition was. But then Singletary, Dent, and myself, we were the representatives of the 80s, but nobody, nobody represented the 1980s decade of Chicago Bears more than Walter Payton. And taking that franchise from the dark days of 1975 to the Super Bowl, the, the pinnacle of the world of professional sports 10 years later. I hate to say we all rode on his back, but he was such a huge part of it. 
And like I said, that picture tells a story. He's in the middle. Everybody else is around. There were interchangeable parts, but he was the one constant. And how could we not think about him when we were on that stage? So that's Dan Hampton. Uh, I, I do like that he brought up a game that I hadn't heard about uh, a lot, which was a, a Buccaneers game. D- you played in Florida. What's it like playing down there? It's hard to explain, Ricky E.T. It's, I mean, it will take the soul out of you if you're playing at noon and you have to be hydrated. And when you're not from down south, it's tough. And for a kid from the Midwest going down south playing in Miami, Florida, it is tough. And the teams that were from up north or kids that weren't from the south, you could tell that they weren't ready to play because it was too hot. They were worrying about sitting by the fans. So, yeah, and puking from what, yeah. from what and, Dan and, said. And, and, and from, from that, you really find out a little bit more about yourself and how, how far you can dig deep. And I had conversations with my dad about playing in Florida before he passed and like how, yeah, how you, tough your was decision it. was Wisconsin which I mean is going to be hot at the beginning of the year but then you're really just battling cold yeah. and Florida which starts hot and ends pretty hot yeah he was just always telling me that even in, during that summer like he wanted me to work out and be outside and like the heat you want to you know I was more thinking about weight room stuff and running inside and he's like no you have to get acclimated to the heat you have to it's a must and I thought he was just like talking trash no he was serious he knew exactly what he was talking about when I got down to Miami got down to Florida I really saw that it's tough to play so yeah you see guys puking you see guys throwing up and some guys can stay on the field some guys can't uh last thing real quick here Dan was kind of the first one that I had heard not bring up but really go into detail uh, about your dad's conflict with the whole Super Bowl thing, things like that. One part that I was not able to include in the special is your conversation with him about that. Do you remember talking to him about the Super Bowl and just just to kind of um, – I can't get his opinion on it because he's no longer here, but so I have to kind of yeah. go through you, like what kind of closure he had. I think the closure for him was that he – had the opportunity to not only play in a Super Bowl, but to win one. A lot of it, I think he he really started to see that it really didn't mean that much to score a touchdown, um, to have the championship. I think it means that much more because that is long-lasting and that's forever. And I think when he came down to it, it kind of – he reflected on it. And he had a lot of friends – who never got a chance that played in other, you know, professional sports that never had a chance to even play for a championship. And he saw, you know, how lucky he was to be able to have one. So, uh, you know, we, it, we, you and I could be if, listen, Jim McMahon stays healthy, we might be talking about like a dynasty. This wouldn't be just one Super Bowl. It would be a couple Super Bowls we were talking about. Yeah, I, I feel like your dad might have dug, not that he didn't, dig deep but he he, he would have stuck around a, a little bit longer than he did if if Jim was still there and if, oh, yeah. if Buddy was still there and because I mean he he was I mean you go through some of those times that he went through in the 70s though I mean yeah how do you come to work every single day <laughs> knowing you're running into a brick wall all the time that's what's amazing to me and that is fight to kind of get through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff on the other side and like he had to walk through a lot of that pain and suffering and the bad teams to be able to be on, 
you know, those 80s teams that really were uh, either contenders or if you want to look at that 85 Bears team as being one of the greatest teams ever assembled. Yeah, I, I look more literally at just the physical makeup of like his neck, how he was able to take that many blows and still every time he got hit, he you just see his, his neck buck up and truck people. I don't know. It, it amazes me still. Anyway, uh, that's Dan Hampton for today. That's uh, We only got a couple more to go, four or five left. We've still got to talk to your mom, to Matt Suey, to Barry Sanders, hopefully a special guest here or there. Um, and then we've got to get Ike, Richard Isaac, on the on – the <laughs> you got a big weekend coming up. It's a big weekend. Yeah, I'm going to try to – Going to London. Yeah, going to London. I'm going to try to figure out how to get Ike on the podcast. He's got a lot of great stories. Absolutely. All right, be well. We'll talk to you soon.